We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Donald Trump and Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, visit East Palestine, Ohio, the rural town that is the site of the terrible train derailment more than two weeks ago. We'll tell you about their dueling messages and what, if anything, it means. Plus, Vivek Ramaswamy, the biotech entrepreneur, gets into the Republican race for president. Does he have a chance? And South Carolina Senator Tim Scott gives a speech in Iowa suggesting that he, too, may soon join the ranks of presidential candidates for the Republican nomination for president. Welcome. I'm Paul Gigo, and I'm joined today by my peerless peers, Kim Strassel and Alicia Finley. Welcome to you both. Let's talk about the unfortunate town of East Palestine first. Mayor Pete, as we used to call him, Pete Buttigieg, been Treasury Secretary now for a couple years, coming under criticism for not having visited the town until now, despite the trauma of that train derailment. He finally showed up this week, and let's listen to what he had to say. Well, to be clear, our department was on the ground within hours, uh, helping with the response and the investigation. Again, I respect the separate role of NTSB, but we have been on the ground literally from day one uh, to make sure that uh, that we're doing our part to support. Uh, I do think that it's important to speak out about that. And I could have spoken out sooner, and I'm uh, making sure that we are focused on the actions that are going to make a difference. Alicia, first of all, word just came across the wire here as we were getting prepared for this that the cause, the NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, thinks that the cause of the derailment may have been an overheated wheel bearing. We don't know many more details other than that. So what do you make of the message that Pete Buttigieg brought to the townspeople of East Palestine? Well, I feel a little sympathetic to him on one hand because he said last week that, well, there are about a thousand derailments every year. Year, this one has drawn more attention because of the damage, but these things happen, which was, in my view, that's right. We didn't know at the time exactly what the cause is, and I think the National Transportation Safety Board is still investigating. They know that it was an overheated wheel bearing, I think, around 253 degrees Fahrenheit above ambient temperature, and Norfolk Southern had detection systems in place, but they didn't seem to detect these record temperatures, and so I think there's going to be more investigation investigation of that. But the responsibility is really up to the EPA in terms of responding to the chemical hazards and the National Transportation Safety Board, which has been investigating what's on the ground. What we really had in recent days is now Pete Buttigieg is now trying to parry the criticism he has received by a lot of Republicans for not, you know, coming out and showing more sympathy and compassion, which you should do whenever there's a tragedy like this, by kind of putting out some proposals and demands upon the railroads that really have nothing to do with the disaster and aren't going to prevent future disasters. And he's trying to deflect blame or deflect attention from the administration. I don't think you can argue really that the administration is at fault in any way for this disaster, but I think they're now trying to politicize it in a way that really doesn't serve the people of East Palestine. 
2018. And Kim, some of those suggestions from Secretary Boot Edge Edge concern time honored, if you will, request by big labor to uh, <laughs> uh, things they've wanted for a long time, which he's now trying to shoehorn into a response to the derailment. Yeah, this is naked opportunism, okay? He sent a letter to the CEO of Norfolk Southern, Alan Shaw, and he complained that the railways had invested millions of dollars and courts and litigation and lobbying members of Congress to oppose common sense safety regulations, etc. You know, this is really glossing over the history here. You know, you go back to 2013, there was a very awful trained railment in Quebec. This set off a conversation about railway safety. In 2015, the Obama administration put in new rules governing what they call electronically controlled pneumatic brakes, insisting that they go into certain high hazard trains. I mean, the problem here is that there's no real evidence that those brakes are that much better than what is around, although they're extremely expensive. I would also note in this particular case, now that we're hearing that there was an overheated wheel bearing, they would have had no bearing whatsoever on this train situation itself. These rules wouldn't have even applied to this particular train since they only apply to certain high hazard flammable trains, which this one was not. But because they were expensive, it is true that the industry uh, litigated and the Trump administration rescinded those rules. And now we're having a conversation again in Congress about whether or not to bring them back. But he offered up a number of other just kind of red herrings. You know, there needs to be more people, actual people involved in inspecting tracks instead of the technology that's currently being used in many places. This is, a, as you note, a time-honored labor complaint. They would still love to be doing everything in triplicate, writing it out by hand. They don't like automation. You know, more complaints from Buttigieg. We need more crew members on the train. There's not much evidence to suggest that would have mattered here. My favorite is paid sick leave. I'm not quite sure how having paid sick leave for the unions would do anything for the overheated wheel bearing. But, you know, they're going to throw in everything they can right now. They're going to try to make it sound as though this is all down to corporate greed and try to get some pieces of their own regulatory agenda in play on the basis of this crisis. All right. Probably the thing to follow here is the investigation by the NTSB and see if how that turns out and whether or not there's anything from a regulatory point of view that would make a difference, or if this is just a failure of a system that's already in place. And sometimes that, of course, does happen. All right. The town also had another visitor, Donald Trump, former president, also showed up bringing what he called Trump water to the town where people are concerned about the quality and safety of the local tap water in the wake of the derailment. Let's listen to Mr. Trump. We're bringing thousands of bottles of water, Trump water, actually, most of it. Uh, some of it, we had to go to a much lesser quality water. <laughs> you want to get those Trump bottles, I think, more than anybody else. But we're bringing a lot of water, thousands of bottles, and we have it in trucks, and we brought some on my plane today. But to that end, I'm pleased to announce that we've helped coordinate the delivery of the water and bottled water, as uh, well as the tractor trailers full of it. We have big tractor trailers full of water. I think you're going to have plenty of water for long time, maybe. Trump water to the rescue. Didn't bring Trump steaks, but did bring Trump water. Kim, it's smart politics by Trump, I think. Of course, he's now declared for president again. This part of Ohio is a rural county. It's uh, very much Trump country, Trump voter country. And Trump is trying to demonstrate some solidarity here 
with the people there who have expressed a lot of frustration that maybe because they're simply a rural county in a Trump part of the state that they've been ignored by President Biden. The criticism has been that if this were a different part of the country, President Biden would have been on a plane there to acknowledge the trouble a lot earlier. I don't know that that's fair. A president can't attend every disaster area. But he did create this timing opening for Trump, and Trump is filling it. The other thing I would say, though, is that on the tap water front, the governor, Republican governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, and the EPA head, Michael Regan, the Environmental Protection Agency, both drank from tap, a tap this week to try to show that it's safe. And Trump, meanwhile, was saying, well, that water might not be safe. I'm not so sure that's a good message. Yeah, look, he's trying to capitalize on this. In addition to bringing the water and expressing solidarity, he's definitely much making that contrast while he was there. He said, you know, they're doing nothing for you. They were intending to do nothing for you. So he very much wants this to be a criticism of Biden leadership and Pete Buttigieg leadership. I agree with you. The water thing is a little concerning only in that Mike DeWine is actually a Republican governor. The EPA has been doing extensive testing out there. They've been on a real mission recently to kind of calm fears over this. And as you said, when to great lengths to publicly drink tap water to get that message across. This definitely undercuts that a little bit. You know, it's notable to me that this is, is this what Trump is going to do as a sort of campaign strategy? Since he announced, and it's been some time now, he hasn't really given that many events, yet he played up this one really big. And I think it sort of shows the degree to which he's taking an even more populist bent this time around on the second campaign campaign, which is just notable from a bigger perspective about how he intends to make his bid for presidency this time. Alicia, did uh, Biden, President Biden, make a mistake? And Mayor Pete, who also wants to be president, I think, and uh, ran once, uh, will run again, I suspect, if President Biden does not run. But did the president make a mistake, create an opening for Trump here? I do. And I'm actually surprised that they allowed this because Biden and much of the left, they're trying to appear to be more pro-worker and a lot of their outreach have really been trying to to win back some of these areas in rural counties, you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, that Trump picked off and has, you know, built a lot of support out there. And it's kind of surprising that they neglected this and misread the politics. And especially if you recall six, seven years ago when the Flint water crisis in Flint, Michigan, when there was lead poisoning among children and people out there, you know, the politicians, including Biden at that time, were immediately on the ground. They tried to make it a political issue about, you know, racial discrimination. And so, you know, the contradiction or the disparate treatment here will probably be picked up by some Republicans on the right, just showing this Trump has tried to make this theme of his campaign and back in 2016, 2020, and now again about the forgotten man and how Democrats are abandoning or neglecting these rural, you know, working class white towns. And again, this is going to be probably going to resonate among Trump voters. All right, we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk a little presidential politics with another candidate getting into the race and maybe another one sounding like he may when we come back. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. 
Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, play the opinion Potomac Watch podcast. That is, play the opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo with Kim Strassel and Alicia Finley here on Potomac Watch. And let's turn to presidential politics, which is now getting underway. I regret to have to say, but we're fated to cover this. And so we had another candidate getting into the race, major, minor, depending on your point of view. He's Vivek Ramaswamy, a 37-year-old biosciences entrepreneur and the author of Woke Inc. about the woke takeover of corporate America and a contributor to the Wall Street Journal opinion pages. It's good to have a midwife and other presidential candidate here on our pages. Let's listen to Mr. Ramaswamy about why he's running. We're in the middle of this national identity crisis where you ask most people my age, really any age, what does it mean to be American today? You get a blank stare in response, and I'm on a mission to deliver an answer to that question because as much as I've been complaining about woke culture and identifying that problem, I think the way we solve it is by delivering an American national identity that is so powerful that it dilutes those woke agendas to irrelevance. And when I see a field forming where, yes, people are competing on their biographies, I think it'd be much better for the country for us to focus on the what and the why instead of obsessing over the question of the who. And that's what I hope to deliver to this field. Kim Vintage uh, Ramaswamy there, not a syllable out of place, rapid fire, very articulate, very smart, and I think an excellent messenger. The question is, I mean, he's 37 years old. He's never held elective office. He is not well known, even though he's appeared on Fox quite a bit and CNBC, by the way, as well, given his business bonafides. But that has not necessarily built a national brand. So he's starting from a very low level of national recognition. What do you think about him as a candidate? Yeah, I mean, he's going to have to work real hard to break in there and try to become uh, nationally known. This is certainly one way to do it is to get into a presidential race. But look, one thing he's really got going in his favor, you, you mentioned he's 37. The man has such energy. It is extraordinary. If you want to paint a contrast between the current occupant of the White House and youthful vigor, this is one person who can do it. He's really defined himself so far on our pages and on Fox as someone who wants to take up what he just articulated there. It's a lot about American national identity, cultural issues. He has waged a campaign against wokeism. He wrote that book, uh, Woke Inc. He's been a very ardent supporter of free speech. He's been a very aggressive critic of ESG in capital markets and in corporations. You know, he's got a line out there that he really rejects to the whole climate religion that he says has shackled the U.S. and allowed China completely free to do what it wants to do. He's a big fan of re-embracing merit, which so am I. I'd love to hear candidates talk about that. I think the real question, though, Paul, is, you know, these are things that certainly resonate with Americans, and they're definitely things that they want to hear from candidates. But is he going to be able to fill that out with the kind of policy agenda that also matter very much to political candidates, especially those for 
president. You know, where is he on taxes, regulation? What's he going to do about the border? What's his foreign policy views? Those are things that he's going to have to flesh out and will be really central as to whether or not he manages to move from a sort of candidate on the side that has some interesting and unique perspectives, but into a tier that people seriously consider him as for president. I think we've had in recent years a number of candidates who are I would describe as vanity candidates to get in the race. They have really no chance. Marianne Williamson on the Democratic side, for example, Dennis Kucinich, I don't know how many times he ran for president. He was one. These people had no chance. They're trying to improve their brands. I would guess I would argue put Tulsi Gabbard even the last time in that camp, the former Hawaii Democratic congresswoman. And Ramaswamy is going to have to persuade people that he's not just a vanity candidate and people who consider him presumptuous for running at 37. He'll have a chance to do that, I think. But he's, to get on the debate stage, he's going to have to show, I think, enough significant poll numbers and support to do so. One place where he won't get campaign contributions, Alicia, is from BlackRock executives and Larry Fink, the CEO, <laughs> because he's really gone after them on ESG investing, environment, social, and governance agenda. And he thinks investments that companies make should be based upon returns to shareholders, not a political agenda. Right. So he actually last year founded this Strive Asset Management, which is intended to be a foil to BlackRock and some of the other asset managers, such as Fidelity, State Street, that have really kind of promoted this environmental social governance investing in which climate, social issues like identity politics, diversity on boardrooms are really prioritized in a lot of decisions in terms of the proxy ballots and other investing. So he's kind of pushed this and made this an issue and among conservatives. And you've seen a lot of Republican AGs and even governors and state treasurers actually kind of respond to this and actually start raising questions with BlackRock and other asset managers. So I think he's actually had a pretty good uh, contribution to our politics by raising these issues. And I'm not sure whether this is going to be an issue that's really going to resonate in a political campaign. It actually certainly did in some of the treasurer's races and controller's races back in November, in which some Republicans actually ran on these issues and, you know, down ballot contests. But I'm not sure whether he's going to be able to actually leverage this issue in itself in his presidential bid. Just a factual point, uh, Alicia. I think it isn't Vanguard the asset manager that's really been ESG focused more than Fidelity? Well, Vanguard actually pulled out one of these big groups, uh, climate focused groups, just recently. So it's actually been trying to distance itself from this because probably because it realizes the politics are very toxic. But has Fidelity done this too? Fidelity has also been involved in a lot of climate. All right. Just wanted to make sure. All right. Let's turn to Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. He has not declared for president yet, but he may, in fact, in the end, and this week he gave a big hint, traveling to Iowa, site of the first GOP caucuses in 2024. And he gave a speech that was more than his usual speech about his biography and personal story. Let's listen to a clip. Fentanyl isn't the only poison flooding our countries. Politicians in the culture are getting communities hooked, hooked on the drug of victimhood and the narcotic of despair. They are addictive and they are lethal. People see themselves as victims with no hope, no accountability, 
and no skin in the game. Kim, what's notable to you about Senator Scott's speech there in Iowa? So what was most notable is kind of what you teased right there, is that this was different than some of his speeches he normally gives. He tends to have one speech, and it's very much about his own biography, which, by the way, is an inspiring biography, so that is useful for what it's worth. But this one, this was a feistier Tim Scott. I kind of liked it. And he kind of maneuvered over and instead was talking about where Americans are at the moment, the gloom that is here, and then very much blaming it on democratic policies. He had a line, he said, if you want a blueprint to ruin America, you'd keep doing exactly what Joe Biden has allowed the left to do these last two years. So this is a Tim Scott, I think, who wanted to show that if he runs for president, he's got what it takes to take on the Democratic Party. One thing I really liked about this speech too, Paul, was its optimism. That was a little bit of more of Tim Scott describing what's wrong, but he really projected optimism in this speech. He talked about how we need to have a new American sunrise, and he talked about how he'd love to see a Republican Party that could win 49 states and the popular vote. And I just think that's a really important addition if he gets into this field, because if you go back to 2016, Republican primary voters, they wanted something unconventional. They wanted someone who had the fight, so they nominated Donald Trump, and they got that. But at the cost of when you elect a politician that's all about the fight, you can quite easily alienate 50% of the country. And that's kind of been what's been happening in politics since then. You know, Biden was obviously narrowly elected too. And so Tim Scott is hinting that he'd run a campaign that would be aimed at inviting some more people in under the tent, speaking to all Americans. And I think that would be a useful addition. Yeah, very important point, Kim. And Alicia, I'm going to give you the last word. But one of the things that is, I think, notable here is that everybody has uh, been saying, uh, most of the pros in politics are saying that, well, Tim Scott is every candidate's first choice for VP, (laughs) but not giving him a lot of credit that he could be a candidate of influence by himself in the presidential race. But he's got an awful lot of money behind him. I think, in fact, after Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, he's probably the Republican candidate, maybe Glenn Youngkin. He's probably the candidate who has the biggest war chest, potential war chest, because he has so many big donors behind him, and he's been raising money for a long time. People would like Tim Scott as a spokesman for the Republican Party. How likely do you think he's going to get in, Alicia? And what has he got to do to, you know, relatively briefly here to make a difference? Uh, I think it's almost certain he's going to get in. One thing that people are attracted to him is his compelling biography, you know, being having a single mother and, you know, basically his own story about the American dream and how he was able to succeed nonetheless, despite his background or difficult upbringing. And he also lends, you know, diversity to the slate or a presidential slate. One reason I think he's discounted as an actual contender for the nomination is that he just actually hasn't been around for that long. He comes from South Carolina, so does Nikki Haley, but it's not a big state like Florida. He hasn't done anything big in Congress. He did champion a police reform last term that didn't end up actually going anywhere because the Democrat uh, opposed certain aspects and the progressives wanted to push for much more progressive law enforcement and federalizing a lot of local law enforcement functions. So in that, he did show he could be a leader, but he just has hasn't actually been a very vocal member of Congress on a number of issues. And I think what he would need to do to get a lot of traction is to kind of step up to the plate a little more in Congress and to 
push certain issues or make certain things, police reform, for instance, elevate those in order to elevate his own standing. All right. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you, Kim. And thank you all, as usual, for listening to our modest little podcast. We are most pleased that you join us every day here. And we're back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch.